Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Stephen Leonard Jacobs, editor of Raphael Lemkin's study of the history of genocide, titled, in its published version, Lemkin on Genocide. Today's interview is part of an occasional series of interviews we'll do this spring, addressing the life and work of Raphael Lemkin. As many of you already know, Lemkin coined the term genocide to describe the destruction of groups that has been so common over time. While his contribution has never been forgotten, there's been something of a renaissance of interest in Lemkin over the past decade, and I can't think of anyone better suited to introduce us to him and his ideas than Steve Jacobs. I'll give him a chance to talk about his background here in a moment. Now I'll just say that understanding Lemkin means not just understanding his activism, but appreciating him as a historian and appreciating the way his historical research influenced that activism, something previously out of reach for most of us. The book repays careful reading, and Steve's work editing it is a great service to the field. So, Steve, welcome to the show, and thanks for being with us on New Books and Genocide Studies. My pleasure. Delighted to be here this morning. So let's start out by just asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and and how you became interested in the field of genocide studies. My interest really, I think, stems from my personal background and my intellectual and academic interest. My late father was a survivor of the Holocaust, uh, one of only eight family members to survive uh, out of Germany through a rather large family of over 150 members. So as my students would know, for example, German was the first family language growing up, though it, and I, was born in Baltimore, Maryland, grew up just outside of Washington, D.C. Uh, so stories of family were normative, Holocaust-related stories. Uh, I grew up in a very traditionally religious community where the norm was people with whom my parents interacted had tattoos on their arms. Uh, hmm. The synagogue was nominally orthodox. And as I grew up, and my father shared more and more, he was a scholar and an intellectual, uh, questions arose about the relationship of the community of the faith and the historical event of the Holocaust. So that's kind of my uh, initial entree, we'll say. In addition, I think I had a, a curiosity, also on an intellectual level, about Judaism and the Judaic traditions. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of parallel tracks, but the parallel really was men intersecting and the problems of reconciliation between an historical event and the reality of a Jewish community. From there, uh, my degree work essentially was in initially English literature, but it, I'm kind of an eclectician. In a sense, I have a master's in Hebrew poetry. My dissertation was in the Dead Sea Scrolls. But my my interest was always this Holocaust and Judaism phenomenon. Mm-hmm. From that, I had the, I guess, experience of meeting survivors of other genocides early on. Uh, and I still do a lot of work in the Armenian genocide. Mm-hmm. And that really broadened my own vision and began just a, a curiosity about 
these other tragedies of which I knew precious little. I think most of us do not know. And that's so it's not in my case, I would say, Holocaust studies or genocide studies, Mm -hmm. Holocaust studies and genocide studies. Mm -hmm. I still do both. And I don't think there are a lot of colleagues who work in both at the same time. Most of us tend to be specialists in a genocide or a specialist in the Holocaust and may perhaps look at others. I tend to always, if I'm writing a piece on Holocaust, lo and behold, at the same time, I'm also working on something on genocide. So it seems to be I'm always doing both. And I I do work in Judaic studies, so I do have Mm -hmm. other uh, interests and and write about other things as well. Yeah, I was. That's perhaps a little less common to be in religious studies and and looking at genocide than it is to be a historian or a political scientist or something like that. How do the two, in your mind, fit together? Well, uh, I think the place which we all begin is, and I'll, I'll use the chair of our department's trope, we're all really historians because <laughs> we all look at something that happened before we studied it. Well, I, I just have to interrupt and say, as a historian, I've always believed that to be true. It's comforting to find that other people recognize that. Well, he's had some interesting interactions with other historians who want to argue with him, but it makes well. sense, at least to me. <laughs> So I'm trained as an ancient historian. That's uh-huh. really my background and, and work. But what I discovered as I got involved and began reading literature is that the primary first team were the historians, of course, which made sense and appealed to me. Second team then became the political scientists, both the activists and the policymakers, but people who saw it, who saw genocide in a political context. But the one voice I didn't hear were people who work in religious studies, and other than me. Uh, and it struck me as peculiar because I have this thesis, and we'll perhaps talk about that, that religion is a factor in all genocides in some way. And I uh, very consciously use the word factor. I'm not saying... It could be a perpetrator factor. It could be a reconciliatory factor, but it's there. But if you're not trained in the discipline of religion, my concern is you're not asking the right set of questions. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to add another voice as we sit around the table and talk about genocide. There are historians and political scientists and philosophers and sociologists and psychologists and religionists. Mm -hmm. And I would put Judaic studies in this context as a subcategory of of religious studies. But religionists, people who look at the socio-cultural construct we call religion and how, where is it in these genocides? Mm-hmm. So that's how all of it merged into me. And, and you tried to... to um, you tried to create a place where people could have that discussion. And, 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 and I'm referring here perhaps at least a little bit to the book you edited called Confronting Genocide. Can you talk a little bit maybe about that book and what the main ideas are and what you tried to do there? 
Yeah, that that book was really the opportunity to crystallize my perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, what I did very consciously was extend an invitation to scholars of religion that I know that I've worked with over the years that have written on it to contribute either a previously written piece, a not yet published piece, or something mm -hmm. new on two questions. Where is this intersection of religion and genocide, both in its uh, institutional context, that is, there are two essays in the book by friends of mine who are Roman Catholic scholars mm -hmm. of Roman Catholicism on mm -hmm. the role of the church in Rwanda. That's the institutional setting. Uh, others, the other setting is the intellectual, theological, philosophical aspect of religion. How does that interface? So I extended the invitation to... Uh, Everyone I knew at the time who really does work in genocide, most of them were delighted with the opportunity. Mm -hmm. uh, I will say a note in the book, which I'm very pleased with and use it in a seminar I teach, uh, that one of the contributors is a full-fledged historian, hmm. uh, not a religious studies scholar, but he's my co-author in a number of other projects. So we tend to work together. <laughs> And he really wanted, he had never thought in these terms. So I thought, well, that's a way to get somebody who's not identified as a religious studies scholar into the yeah. conversation in reverse. Mm -hmm. So I invited uh, him and he still, when we talk and we're engaged in projects now, he still refers to his essay <laughs> because it was that different way to think about the work he does. But it's basically all religious studies people. And so after that book, where, or with the experience of that book behind you, where does that conversation go next? Uh, I think it's, it's really tracking perhaps the contributors. Mm -hmm. They're, they're still doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, we're still seeing pieces written and published by a number of my colleagues in this intersection, what Henry Hutenbach uh, of the City University of New York calls the nexus between mm -hmm. religion and genocide. It's still happening. I've done a number of follow-up pieces. There's a defunct journal that did a major, kind of a journal newspaper called Science and Technology News, huh. uh, which did a major issue on genocide. I think genocide's a quasi hot topic. Yeah. And uh, they invited me to do the piece on religion and genocide in this oversized newspapery kind of thing. They also had historians and other people contribute political science, mm -hmm. but it's still there. So if you maybe collectively add me and my contributors the voice of the religionists is being welcomed around the table. Mm -hmm. So, so your other project then, or at least one of your other projects is Lemkin. Um, yes. So how, how did you decide to, oh, well, to edit uh, Lemkin's 20, stu historical days. studies and publish them? <laughs> that, that's a, 
that's rather a long, not long winded, but a circuitous story. Uh, my bachelor's degree is in English literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, you know, kind of another set of interests, but literature in general. The denominational magazine of my own religious community published an article about Lemkin, somebody that had written uh, years ago. I think it was called The Forgotten Man. Huh. I had never heard of him, certainly in my own undergraduate courses in history. Uh, he never came up. My, mm-hmm. you know, again, reading the Nazi period, he certainly didn't yeah. surface there. Unknown. So the article was interesting. But in the article, his attorney said, my goal for my late friend, Lemkin died in 1959, was to see his autobiography published as well as his unpublished writings. Hmm. So I, the editor of the denominational magazine happened to be a friend, so I called him, got the contact information of the attorney, figured as a person with a bachelor's in English, I've done some editing work. I mm-hmm. wrote him a nice letter and said I would welcome such an opportunity, press, because I thought it was interesting. Yeah. He wrote me back and said, appreciate the letter. Uh, two of your colleagues have already said they're going to work on the project. <laughs> okay. You know, I've got other things to do. Yep. I was moving from where I was living at the time, saw the letter, and happened to know the two fellows that he had referenced. <laughs> Because they were friends, I called one of them up. I said, how are you guys doing on your Lemkin project? He said, oh, we gave it up. We had no interest in it. Wrote the attorney back, and because Lemkin never married, and his family really had no claims of ownership, the lawyer legally granted me uh, access as a scholar, uh, told me where some of the material was. Uh, One was the New York Public Library. I contacted them because it was in the rare collections part of the building. Mm -hmm. And uh, the person who brought me the paper said, after he blew the dust off, he said, you're the first person that's even looked at it in 30 years. And it just, the more I read, the more I said, oh my gosh, Uh what a treasure trove of material. His writings that were published, his unpublished, his incomplete manuscripts, his correspondence, his articles. He was a bit of a pack rat for a scholar, thank goodness. Saved literally 20,000 pages. Oh, my Lord. So I have these seven file cabinets. My wife, (laughs) he's there in my office at the university, not my office at home. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I have microfilm of the entire collection, Hmm. as well as hard copy. And it continues to be a treasure trove of sharing information. And increasingly in the field, he is now recognized not only as the author of our word genocide, not only as the motivating force behind the 48 convention, but as the father of the field. And and my argument would be he was both a legal activist and an academic. He did teach at Duke Law School, taught at Yale Law School. So my goal has always been to get his stuff out. Uh, Lemkin on Genocide is the second book I've done of his manuscripts. The first Mm -hmm. 
uh, which has just been recently reissued in paper, was Lemkin's evaluation of the Nuremberg trials. He was there. He worked with Justice Jackson in a somewhat unofficial capacity. Hmm. But the word genocide appears in the multi-volume Nuremberg documents 16 times. So he did have an impact. He was Mm -hmm. disappointed that the word did not appear in the charges. Uh, But he wrote an assessment. So my early book called Not Guilty, uh, on which is the edited manuscript of his Mm -hmm. report, uh, was number one. This is the second volume, but it's the one that, I don't know, maybe I'm prouder Hmm. finally because it really shares with the reading audience just about every chapter that he wrote on the genocides that he and his students, who he never, with one exception, they're never identified in any of his papers. All his researchers, Hmm. I don't know if it was an ego issue at the time, Hmm. Uh, there's a funny letter about, hey, you didn't send me my check for doing my <laughs> research. But uh, this is the incomplete manuscript of what he saw as his magnum opus, mm-hmm. a three-volume history of genocide. And we have before us in one volume all of the chapters that were completed with five exceptions. There are four that were never that I found that were never in the outline. Mm. And there was a lengthy manuscript specifically on the Armenian genocide, independent of the outline of the book that I've written about and Mm -hmm. summarized and have written at least two pieces on Lemkin on the Armenian genocide. That manuscript has actually been independently published by me with, uh, by the Armenian community. Hmm. So, but that's it. This is what he intended as his history of genocide. And those chapters are fascinating. And I tried to certainly in my uh, commentary, identify some of the references early Hmm. on and to kind of bring us up to speed with uh, additional bibliographical material which, again, dying in 59, the book is out in 2013. There's a lot, there's been a number of them, but not all of them. Yeah. Uh, there's still references to genocides that people are not studying. So, but, and, and so let's start there, because it, the, the book, as, as published, is, right. is, I guess I would suggest, roughly divided into two parts, a short, more theoretical discussion, and then a long, much longer kind of, series of case studies. So, so let's take that second one first. Um, can you say something about the way Lemkin, the vision Lemkin had for this historical treatment? What kinds of case studies does he address? How, how comprehensive does he try and be? Does he try and have some kind of common approach in each case, in, 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 in describing each case study? What, what vision does he have for this? First, I think that what propels him is actually to get before the reading uh, public these historical stories within the context of thinking about them as occasions and or examples of genocide. 
and we have to go back to the 50s. Remember, the word is new. We There is no uh, comparable word. The word Holocaust is not in public discourse. Yeah. Uh, perhaps the closest we come is something like mass murder. We even have the German word Massenmord. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we we just know some of them. So I think that's primary, getting the data before his audience. These are genocides because this is what I understand. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that I discovered in doing the chapters is you can't really see where he's going without the first part. Yeah. The theoretical construct. What are the factors that would constitute genocidal activity? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then one has to understand why he was so energized to become the motivating force for the convention. It all kind of hangs to peace. The one question I can't answer, and I'm not sure any of us can, was whether or not the first part of what I put together was to be a standalone mm. volume. Uh, mm-hmm. There were days when I was absolutely convinced it was the case. And then on reflection and reading it again, no, I'm not sure it was. But he titled it Introduction to the Study of Genocide. Mm-hmm. But it, to be part of a multi-volume set, it would have been a long introduction, not yes. a 90-page excursus. Mm-hmm. So was it to be a set? But he doesn't tell us. And in my other field of Judaic studies, the leading scholar of Judaic studies in the United States, Jacob Neusner at Bard College, has a trope, what we cannot show, we do not know. Mm-hmm. And in Lemkin's case, I found that rather invaluable and insightful. He doesn't tell us what that introduction was to be. Yeah. You know, I'm reluctant now to say, yes, it was part of the multi-volume no, it was a stand-alone volume. That's just an ongoing question. Yeah, but it's it's in the book because I do see it very positively. Mm-hmm. Read through the first part and then look at the case studies, as you mentioned. Now it makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Now, well, let's well let's start with it then. How how does Lemkin define genocide in that introduction? Uh, yeah. Well, in it, it's really the in part it's a resummarization mm-hmm. of chapter nine of Axis Rule in Occupied Europe, which was his massive six hundred and seventy five page book produced by the Carnegie Endowment in nineteen forty four. And the irony of all of it is that he has a chapter number nine on genocide where he defines it. It's mm-hmm. the smallest chapter in the book, but it's the one that has that launches his work. Mm-hmm. But it's really a legal text, very massive, on laws. It's called Axis Rule in Occupied Europe. And it's really a, a legal scholar's book, looking mm-hmm. at the laws of these various countries under Nazi hegemony. And right there, chapter nine, genocide. Mm-hmm. Now, again, as as good historians, we have to understand as well that his word genocide is definition or word 2.0. In 1933, 
he wanted to go to the League of Nations conference and present a paper on this crime that he saw in an international legal context. But he had two terms, and the Polish words are actually very close to our English words. He, <laughs> he wrote a paper and called the two crimes barbarity and vandalism. Those were his terms. Barbarity was the destruction of human life. Vandalism was the destruction of culture. Hmm. And so that was 1.0. He never mm -hmm. went to Madrid, but the paper was delivered and no action. Uh, then he doesn't stop thinking about this. He escapes from Poland to the United States, loses his family, uh, begins his work in a, in a number of contexts, but genocide appears in 1944, 11 years later, a new word from genos and side. In Axis Rule, what most people perhaps do not know is his first footnote. And he says, I would be also comfortable with the word ethnocide. Ethnos and side. Again, a people and its murder. Huh. Uh, so you've got, the, so what does he define? Very simply put, genocide is the destruction of a people as the definition of the UN in whole or in part and its culture. Mm -hmm. And the other significant thing that a number of scholars have picked up on, he also saw it in war and peace. He, he was not, it's not solely a crime of war. So he had, and this is reflected in that introductory material as well, uh, the various dimensions. When he mm -hmm. talks about culture, he talks about religion. He talks about uh, political communities. So he had a much more all-embracing view of, of genocide than we realize. And uh, we, I, I hope, I trust our audience also knows the uncomfortable fact that he had political groups in the original submission of the draft manuscript to the United Nations. Mm -hmm. But the Soviets were adamant if the document continues to include the word political groups, the Soviets who are on the security, you know, the, the gang of five, Mm -hmm. uh, would not support it. And he writes in his autobiography that he was willing to allow, because he had no official standing, the UN committee to remove political groups from the definition if it meant the passage of the convention. Yeah. And I think that's a critically important comment. I mean, politics continues to be a wheeling, wheeling and dealing enterprise. He wanted it passed so desperately by those who had the international authority to do so that he relented. Yeah. It was not his original vision. He included political groups. There, there's no question. And whatever else we could say, it's still the only legal definition we have that has legal teeth, mm -hmm. the UN piece. And it's very clear in that introductory material, at least, it, 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 it seems that way to me that he sees his work um, 
to some extent as history for history's sake, but in particular, as, as you suggest, he wants to alert people to this issue and give them some kind of background, but also to give them, especially in the introduction, some sense of of his feeling about how we might make process and progress, sorry, in eliminating genocide. So, so talk a little bit about how this, the genocide convention and this genocide um, definition of publicizing the definition of genocide and then publishing these cases. How does he see this fitting into this broader agenda of of trying to bring uh, to to limit the number the, how often genocide happens? Well, I I don't know. I I wouldn't suggest that Lemkin's concern, at least to the point of his death, was prevention other than mm -hmm. in, in maybe in a broad intellectual way, with knowledge comes responsibility kind of a mindset. Yeah. But he mm -hmm. was a lawyer. And so he had a certain pragmatic sense about his work. Mm -hmm. And he definitely saw the passage of an intellect of a uh, United Nations intellect in, in international legal document as pragmatism. Mm -hmm. You violate the law, there are punishments and consequences for violation. So he certainly was there. So, for example, I think he would have been very pleased about the International Criminal Tribunal. Uh, for Rwanda, the International mm -hmm. Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, the International Criminal Court. He also, he, I think those are the consequences of his thinking. Very practical. Mm -hmm. Violate the law, you stand for punishment. Uh, and you are guilty if you are captured and even flee to a country where you did not practice genocide. And mm -hmm. I think the, the best example would be Augustin Pinochet of Chile, mm -hmm. who was brought to trial in Spain. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's the other side of Lemkin, the scholar. I think we have in this very complicated human being, Lemkin, the scholar, and Lemkin, the activist. Yeah. I, I don't think you can see one or the other. So, all right, this is interesting work I'm doing. Uh, it's interesting work I'm writing. But it's never far. What do I do with it? And mm -hmm. now, again, because he died at age 59, much of other things were incomplete. I would like to believe that prevention would have been the next uh, arena for him to think through, but it never happened. Yeah. We've got, but he did the, in his, in his autobiography, he does say that he was sitting in the balcony at the UN when the document was passed, and he cried. Mm -hmm. he, he broke mm -hmm. down. Uh, all that work, all that tension, all that cajoling of ambassadors, uh, that was his moment. And we are in his debt. Despite the flaws of the legal document, I mean, it, it's not a perfect construction. Uh, the Whitaker report that came out years later had a number of uh, amendments, suggestions. Most of them have not been added to the document. Uh, at this moment, I can't recall anything from the <laughs> Whitaker report that has reshaped the document. Yeah. Uh, but we have these other things. So, you know, it, 
like like I guess all historical persons and projects, it's messy in and of itself. Yeah, and I've I've been referring to him as a historian, but I'm not sure that's that's entirely truthful about the way he saw himself. When I read this this his writings, he really sees and presents the need sees himself as somebody who believes in the need for an interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary approach to understanding this. I I would agree. I would feel very comfortable with that. He certainly was not trained as an historian. Mm-hmm. Uh and again, I think, but I wouldn't want to call him a legal scholar, though he was interested in, his primary interest in the legal community was economics, the relationship of legislation uh, and the impact on economics, both deprivation and nation-state construction. He had genuine intellectual legal interests. But he was not a historian of the law, though he makes reference to Greek law in his book. He, in his own Axis Rule, he makes reference to Roman law. But I don't know. Maybe you're right. Maybe he was an interdisciplinarian, if, if we could coin such a yeah. peculiar uh, <laughs> term for what he did. But I think he was a good. Uh, I think he was a good enough scholar. And, and he certainly was multilinguistic. He, he read or could write in 16 languages. Uh, but he know, he, he could read original texts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that certainly is an evidence. And you see that in the bibliographies. You see it in his correspondence. I mean, the amazing numbers of languages and there's no evidence that he hired translators. I've never seen any reference to that. Hmm. So, wow, Uh, what a polyglot he was in addition. Languages evidently came very easy to him. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'll I'll go with whatever suggestion of label you want. (laughs) It is him. Well, he does this, um, and and, and maybe you can talk about this, because you mentioned that he uh, has researchers working with him. Um, it seems that he lays out a common set of kind of questions and approaches he wants to apply to each of the particular case studies he uses. Um, what, how does he try and structure these, this analysis as he goes case study to case study? Well, uh, historical overview is, is, Mm -hmm. you know, what can, what, knowledge bases, documents, histories, writings do we have? I think that's number one. What's the overview? Uh, from the overview, he then addresses, which I have always found fascinating, the victim populations and the perpetrator population. So those are, I think, the three broad categories of the case studies. Historical overview, what do we know what can we glean from the research? Who are the victims? Who are the perpetrators? Now, woven throughout some of them. Now, remember, this is an unfinished manuscript. Yeah. Even the chapters that presumably are finished, he's not above or outside of making value judgments. He mm-hmm. is very explicit in his writing, and you'll see this in a number of the chapters. Who is guilty? 
you know, he he will label the perpetrators guilty of the crime of genocide. And I, my sense, and when I worked on the manuscript for the years that I worked on it, was this gnawing sense, small voice, that he would, had he lived, he would have polished even more. Yeah. Uh, just as a writer, but he didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that was probably the mandate for his graduate students. And as I said, all of whom are unnamed except one, uh, who apologizes to him, by the way, for her failure to examine a particular French document, uh, which I thought was rather humorous. Uh, but all right. What here's we start with a historical overview. What do we know about the victim population? What do we know about the perpetrator populations? And what do we do with it? Mm -hmm. You know, what do we do with this stuff? Now, again, the three volumes was a massive, would have been a massive project given the number of chapters that we have. And if one, and it's in the book, uh, look at the outline of all of the chapters he wished to include. We have approximately 25%. We've got one-fourth hmm. of the, the wow. multi-volume project. So it was, I think, had he lived beyond, had it proceeded to completion, it would have been a masterwork, no question. Mm-hmm. But that's, I think it was FDR that once used the term iffy, I-F-F-Y, to describe historical things that never happened. (laughs) And I think it was FDR that called it an iffy. (laughs) But I think the completion of manuscript is an iffy. That's about the best I can say. So so how then, given that, and, and given how enormous the kind of workload that implies, what is what is the point of that agenda? Is that simply a drive for completion? Is that an attempt to reinforce this claim that genocide, we need to pay more attention to it because it's happened for as long as humans have been around by including the variety of case studies he, he does? Why make it that long? Because, well, <laughs> because we're ignorant. I think mm. this would have been his, we have not realized that this horror has accompanied humanity on its journey historically. Uh, now that we know, what do we do? And yeah. I think that's why I think maybe the next project would have been not the punishment issue, but the issue of prevention, which certainly is the current conversation among many policymakers, governmental officials, scholars, and and concerned persons about genocide. I mean, if you touch base with any organization of genocide activists, what's interesting is that it's a, a plethora of different kinds of people. Yeah. You know, it's not a not solely or only a scholarly community. It's not solely only a political community or any of the others. There are a number of people get involved on many levels. So maybe that's, that's it. But again, uh, 
those of us who work in the academy certainly say, hey, knowledge of X is the place you start. You have to have a grounding. You have to have a foundation. Whatever your interest area, you've got to know stuff, which my students like because I tell them it's an academic word, stuff, <laughs> before you move on. You've got to have a basic feel. You've got to understand, you know, this knowledge base if you're going to move anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's him. Uh, there are there's a recorded TV interview with him, and there's a, I have a transcript of a radio interview, and you have a sense that that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to really set a foundation for a future conversation. So if if that's the agenda, what what contribution do they make today? Are these case studies useful now, mostly as a way to understand him? Or is the research still important in understanding particular genocides or the phenomenon as a whole? That's a really good question. I'd love to say the answer is yes and yes. Yeah. Uh, I think the book has not been out long enough Mm -hmm. uh, to get it placed where I ultimately hope it will go, which would be the, the, you know, among the first texts of studying the phenomenon. But I think it's, it's certainly, I want to affirm him as the father of the field. And therefore his writings become foundational as more and more of it is published. There's a special issue, for example, of the journal of genocide research Mm -hmm. devoted solely to Lemkin and his writings. Yeah. There was an article in a journal in England, Patterns of Prejudice, where Anne Cuthoys introduces comments and writes about a chapter that doesn't appear in the book, but is in his manuscript, one Tasmania, mm-hmm. and includes that. So it really is beginning to happen, but it's too new. Uh, the other thing is, yes, I think people that have concern themselves with looking at certain historical genocides now have an additional resource if the genocide that they have looked at prior to or independent of Lemkin's writings went in a certain direction. Well, what did his, what did he have to say about it? Mm-hmm. What did, mm-hmm. Maybe he had a source of that uh, I didn't know. Maybe he used something that uh, of which I was unaware of in a particular mm-hmm. ge- because he had people look in French documents, German documents, British documents. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, what I think the minority of the documents are in English. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so it becomes interesting. I mean, I tell my own students, I'm very interested when they do their own research papers in their bibliographies. Yeah. Uh, I had a conversation in my seminar on religion and genocide, and a student made reference to a scholar whose work I know, but referenced an article that I had not encountered. Hmm. And it, I, I think that probably happens to all of us if mm-hmm. do good research, because no one human being can master all of the material, current or historical. I, I found the article last night and downloaded it, and that's part of my, today's work is to read this article that I, I knew his work and I didn't know he had addressed this particular thing 
thank you to my student for finding her. And I think that also becomes important for scholars, not only what he wrote about the genocides, but in some of the chapters, you've seen the book of lengthy bibliographies. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when I was preparing the manuscript, I actually tried to find a number of them. And I found it interesting. Some have been republished. Uh, some are still available in non-English languages. Uh, some, you know, I suppose good historians and literature in particular may be able to find others. But I found some of them rather easily. I said, hmm. that's important. Now I've got a new database to work with. <laughs> So this is a little bit different of a question, but reading the introduction, um, I was really struck. How, how did Lemkin, what did he think of the times he lived in? I, I Since I'm <laughs> close to someone with whom I've never interacted, uh, I, want to, <laughs> I think his sense of the moment was a, that of an opportunity, uh-huh. uh, that opportunity to get that concern, which already surfaced in 1933 before the international community, 15 years later. I mean, we think about the, the time journey, 1933, he surfaces an idea, 1948, it's international law. Mm-hmm. It's amazing in terms yeah. of history. This is the time to make it happen. Uh, this is post-World War II. The enemies have been defeated. The democratic nation-states are on the upswing. Yes, there is tension. But if we're going to address his monomaniacal vision, and he was obsessive, and everyone who has read anything agrees, yep. this is the time. So I think he ultimately is an optimist hmm. with this. Uh, now... Uh, someone I, I'm just at this moment blanking, it'll come to me. Uh, I want to say it was Michael Ignatieff, but I'm not sure, gave a lecture at the Holocaust Museum and was somewhat critical of Lemkin's vision as a child of his time, a certain Eurocentric perspective that I, I'm pretty sure now that it was maybe Ignatieff, that it was a failed vision. And World yeah. War II is evidence of the failure. But what would intrigue me is what Lemkin would think about the EU. And mm-hmm. it's isn't that part of what he is addressing the concept of world community? Mm-hmm. So I think he was an optimist at, at mm-hmm. the time in which he lived, more than we realize. Um, certainly with complicated psychological issues, to be sure. Mm-hmm. But he also was not a parochialist. Uh, he was not a religious person. I, though he grew up in a very religious family, there's nothing that, though he did speak to Jewish groups, there's no evidence of his involvement in Jewish synagogue life or religious life. Uh, as I said, he never married, though he did save some love letters from women that he dated. He also... Uh, one of among his correspondence is an actual proposal. A woman proposed to him. Huh. Uh, I did have the privilege of lengthy chatting with his lawyer 
before his own death. And he said that Lemkin did have a social side and he was an excellent dancer. <laughs> and he would take women out to dinner and they would go dancing. But the lawyer said he was obsessive that he had no time for family. Mm -hmm. So he would come to the lawyer's family on Long Island every Sunday for the barbecue dinner. And the lawyer's children knew him as Uncle Ralph or Uncle Ray. Huh. And he was very, he said he was very good with, uh, Mr. Cohen, the lawyer was Maxwell Cohen, Mr. Cohen's children. They were delighted to see him. He always brought a present. Uh, he was delightful. So, but he never, you know, so he was an optimist, a Eurocentric mm -hmm. mindset, obsessive, uh, certainly in mourning for his own family. He does write and suggest that the convention in many ways is a tribute to his mother, <laughs> with whom he was closer than his father. Uh, one of his brothers survived. One of his, his other brothers died of tuberculosis, but... Uh, and that brother fled, fled to Canada, had children, uh, but I, they did, he did travel to Canada to meet him, but he was definitely not close enough to his brother. Uh, <laughs> and I actually had an interaction with a distant cousin in Connecticut, an elderly woman who remembers meeting him, but they certainly never talked about genocide. Yeah. But she didn't know him well. She said he was distant. I remember her saying that to me. Hmm. He was distant. So, but let's let's go with the optimist. <laughs> well, Steve, we've taken up a lot of your time. Let, let me just ask with uh, end with a couple final questions. And, and one one is fairly simple. Um, for people who are interested in going further uh, about Lemkin, what would you recommend that they read? Well, to be sure. Uh, I would recommend the book, the, this new book, Lemkin on Genocide, and I'm yep. very honored to have the opportunity to share with our audience. Uh, if you're interested in what he thought about the Nuremberg trials, uh, the book is called Not Guilty. You can read that manuscript. Uh, mm -hmm. My colleague, Donnelly Fries, has just released his autobiography with her edited editorial work uh, at a Yale university. I think that's a very important thing on Lemkin. Uh, I've done a number of articles. There's also, I referenced the Journal of Genocide Research special issue, which is a collection of colleagues writing about his work. Uh, there's uh, John Cooper has a book on Lemkin and the Genocide Convention. Uh, I disagree as, as with some of John's conclusions. We've had correspondence. But it does show his interaction at, at that specific historical moment. But I would want to accompany John's book with Larry LeBlanc's earlier book on the U, U.S. and the Genocide Convention to get a better picture of what it must have been like in the 50s, in the euphoria of post-World War II about this particular moment in history of... <laughs> Not that I want people to read it, but I, I want to bring it into the conversation briefly. There was actually a Holocaust denialist text about Raphael Lemkin, huh. which I won't even 
it's the uh, the the book is is literally written by one who who was in the Holocaust denialist community. Uh, it's a rather lengthy book. Uh, most people don't know it. I'm delighted. Most people have never read it. I'm even more delighted. But the fact that it exists is intriguing, and the the author actually did a radio interview, and I have a cassette tape of that interview. I was able to get one, and I thought this is interesting, but it's you can tell it's a denialist text, one, by the publisher, but two, by his constant use of the words maybe, may, and if, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, but it, so that, but that's not on the reading list. Uh, gosh, I don't know. There's, there's <laughs> not a lot yet, but there's more and more. And one of the, for me, one of the more positive things is that we're seeing references to him in scholarly work on genocide. So mm-hmm. his material is getting out and people are reading it <laughs> and people are looking at uh, now some of the archival material uh, and some of the communities that have been the victims. Uh, as I said, the Armenian community published uh, Lemkin's 120-page solo manuscript on the Armenian genocide as a separate volume. Hmm. Uh, how well known it is, I don't know, uh, but I'm delighted that it's out yeah. with a very brief introduction, but it, without annotations. It's basically introduction by a, a good scholar, and then here is the manuscript. Yeah. So, so what are you working on next? Oh, well, <laughs> I've actually, as I said early on, never either or, both and. <laughs> this, we're doing this in January. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to a conference in Canada on genocide called mm-hmm. Understanding Atrocities. Hmm. And I'm giving a paper uh, on a petition against genocide that was presented to the United Nations in the 1950s by the African-American community that charged the U.S. But it never got to the point of going beyond presentation. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's called We Charge Genocide. It's by the U.S., the American Civil Rights Congress. Hmm. And I have a copy of the petition. I have a copy of the autobiography of their executive director, who was a lawyer, who was the primary uh, instigator Hmm. of that. So I'm giving, again, historian's paper, uh, (laughs) because it's an interesting thing that I stumbled across by accident. Mm -hmm. So that's one. Then in March, I'm going to a conference on the Holocaust and presenting on the Holocaust and Hungary, Seven years, 70 years later, and giving a paper on a man who attempted to broker the saving of Jewish lives by interfacing with Adolf Eichmann, who after the war emigrated to Israel, where he was accused of being a collaborator and was assassinated. Oh, no. I want to revisit that huh. scenario. Not so much the, and there are other papers at that conference, certainly that will tell the story of the Jews of Hungary during the Holocaust. But my interest mm-hmm. is this 
very interesting question of uh, Rudolf Kastner is his name and hmm. his story, uh, because the whole question of collaboration, the question of in, during the Holocaust period, the Jewish councils that interface between ghettoized communities and Nazi leadership. Um, mm -hmm. So again, Holocaust and genocide. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's two of the projects. Very briefly, because I think on hindsight it's quite humorous. I'm also writing a chapter in a book called Teaching Jesus at the University of Alabama. And uh, I teach a class, a seminar in Jewish Christian relationships, and certainly questions about Jesus surface. Right. A friend of mine is putting together a volume about teaching. What do you do in Judaic studies when that question and topic come? How do you address it? So I figured, uh, hmm. you know, that that would be kind of fun to play with. Mm -hmm. So I'm doing that. I've just finished an article uh, getting ready to submit called Teaching the Introductory Judaic Studies Course mm -hmm. at the university because I think I have a different way to do it than many colleagues, plus the fact I happen to have written my own textbook uh, <laughs> in Introduction to Judaism courses. So I, I you know, kind of – and then uh, the last, last point of project, uh, I'm – been approved for my sabbatical next spring and I'm going to be working on a book project on the texts of hate being hmm. a historical literary analysis of some of the classic texts you know we'd all think Mein Kampf well there are a lot of others mm -hmm. uh, so I'm going to be working on that but not yet I've got other things to write <laughs> sabbaticals always seem to uh recede into the future as you think you should be getting closer to them but yes. but that all sounds wonderful and i want to say thank you so much for being with us and i hope that we'll have a occasion to have you on the show again and it's been great all right so take care okay it's been a pleasure you've been listening to an interview with steve jacobs editor of the new work lemkin on genocide published by lexington books if you enjoyed this interview you can listen to previous podcasts through itunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time for the second of our two-part series on Raphael Lemkin, when I'll interview Donna Lee Fries about her new work, Totally Unofficial, the Autobiography of Raphael Lemkin. Until then, have a great month. <laughs>